turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul gathers together the tribes of Israel to rescue Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 7. Once again that's 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 7. First Samuel chapter 11. As we jump back into First Samuel, it's good to be reminded of the fact that the book of First Samuel was written with the emphasis of giving us lessons from the heart. We've learned quite a few, some negative, some positive. The heart God wants us to have, the heart doesn't God want us to have. And by this point in time, when we reach chapter 11, God has picked Israel's first king. And he throws a crisis their way. And so in verse 7, it says, he took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers. Now, Saul does this at the expense of two of his herd, a yoke of oxen. It's interesting, Saul shows his seriousness by paying the price first. I'm asking you to pay a price. I'm asking you to put your life on the line, but I'm the first one paying a price here. And that is what good leaders do. They do not crack the whip from behind and say mush. They lead from the front at first cost to themselves. Secondly, the difference, the Levite, when he sent the pieces, he didn't give any instructions. He just sent the pieces out. He just sent body parts. But Saul sent clear instructions. He says, whosoever does not come forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. He says, it's time to go to war. It's time to follow my lead. He says, this isn't just my idea. This is God's idea confirmed by Samuel. So follow our lead as we follow the Lord. By the way, that's also what good leaders do. They say, the Lord is leading me this way. Come follow me. And then what did Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ, right? That's what good leaders do. They don't say, just follow me. They say, follow me as I follow Christ. And then lastly, The Levite, he didn't warn of the consequences of inaction, even though inaction would bring about God's judgment. Saul warned the people what would happen if they didn't follow the Lord. He says to him, listen, if you don't do this, so shall it be done unto your oxen. Now, the question, of course, is, is Saul making a personal threat? Like, is he going to go to everybody's house that doesn't show up and kill their oxen? Seems a bit odd if that was the case. He's just a herdsman with a fancy title at the moment. I don't think that would have moved a lot of people. I do think, though, it's more likely 
that Saul's referring to what the Ammonites would do to them if they didn't follow the Lord's lead. Because if you don't listen to the Lord, he's just going to allow the Ammonites to have their way, just like he did in the period of Judges. And so you think you're going to be spared just because you're living over here? And notice what it says. How do the people respond? It says, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. What does it mean that the fear of the Lord came upon them? Well, the fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is to hate evil. That's what it says. So the best definition I've ever heard for the fear of the Lord is this. It is to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. It's the best definition I've ever heard of the fear of the Lord. And so the idea here is Saul's angry because evil is being done. Wrong is being done. And so he calls them to have a similar reaction, to hate the evil that's being done and to rally behind my leadership as I'm sensing God is leading me to do something about it. And so it says the fear of the Lord came upon them. They loved what God loved and hated what God hated. The same work God's spirit did in Saul, he did in the rest of the nation. God's spirit was saying this is wrong as they got these parts and they were, oh, they heard the message. They realized this is wrong. We can't just sit back and not do something. We can't just sit back and let other tribes take care of it. God is summoning us. We need to partner with him. And praise the Lord, they did partner with him just like Saul did. For it says they came out with one consent. Literally, that means as if they were one person. No disagreements. They, they all moved as one. Listen, if you've never led anything, you may not know this, but most of us have had to lead something at some point or another. One of the hardest things to do in life is to get a large group of people to move forward in unison. I never dreamed how hard it would be just to keep track of 18 people in Israel. We lost one <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> it was quite the panicking moment. And these were not children. These were adults. It is not easy getting a group of people that all have their own thoughts. They have their own personalities. They have their own opinions about things. They have their own ways they think things can be fixed. And to get them all moving in the same direction, it's not easy. But when a leader yields to God's spirit, God's spirit can overcome those challenges. And so verse 8, when he numbered the people in Bezek, Bezek is the area in the mountains just on the opposite side of the river from Jabesh Gilead. So it's nearby, just on the other side of the river in the mountains. So when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel, they were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. Now, why does he point out the difference between the, the children of Israel and the men of Judah? Well, because the nation had already started to see themselves as north and south. They had already started to see themselves this way. It's only going to be a few generations that they're going to split. You know, they, even though they didn't separate into two kingdoms until after Solomon died, we're not far away from that. So they had already begun to see themselves as two different people groups. Now, Saul, he's got his work out, cut out for him, trying to unite this group is what that's telling us here. And yet, here they were. Now that they were united on this task at least, they decide, all right, let's send messengers to Jabesh Gilead and let them know we're going to come to their rescue. Verse 9. And so they said unto the messengers that came, thus shall you say unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by that time that the sun be hot, so before noon, it says, you shall have help. And so the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. That's a bit of an understatement. It means they were elated. It means they held a celebration. They were partying. 
And I'm sure that the Ammonites thought they were partying like it was 1999. The world's going to end. That's what they thought. They're having their big last celebration. But they were partying because our brother's going to come to our, our aid. Verse 10. So the leaders of Jabesh, after they party, they decide to do their part in the fight with a bit of subterfuge. It says, therefore, the men of Jabesh said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will come out unto you and you shall do with us all that seems good unto you. They said this to the Ammonite messengers. We will surrender and we'll make this deal with you, but wait till about tomorrow around noon. I would think if I was the Ammonites, I'd go, something's fishy. (laughs) Why noon? But the Ammonites, what did they have to fear from them? Israel was never united in the past, nothing. And so they're going to have their guard down and be caught by surprise when the attack comes, not from Jabesh, but from somewhere else. Verse 11. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, divided them to three armies, three-pronged attack, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and they slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that the two of them were not left together. It's interesting here because, again, it would be a multi-pronged attack from three directions, but When it says that, and so it was on the morrow that Saul did this, you have to remember something. When does an Israeli day start? 6 p.m., not 12 a.m. like our day. Their day starts at 6 p.m. So when it says on the morrow, it means at 6 p.m. he divided his armies, so at night, he divided his armies into three sections, and then he moved those troops over the river under the cover of darkness. They would not see the army coming. So it says, when did they attack? They attacked in the morning watch. The morning watch is those last four hours of the watch. That's from like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So right as the sun comes up, they're already there, and that's when they attack. And so they had all of the element of surprise. They're coming from three different directions, and the Bible tells us the Ammonites were beaten so badly they couldn't even form an organized retreat. It says that there was not two of them left together. When you're beaten, you can still try to save as many people if you keep your retreat organized. You hold your lines and you retreat strategically. But none of that was going on here. Not even two people were organized together. Everybody just scattered everywhere. This was a huge victory for the nation of Israel. And that Saul was the one who led him to it had a dramatic effect upon the tribal leaders. So much so... After it's over, they turn on those who hadn't supported Saul. Look at verse 12. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. That's nice. They help you fight. Now you're ready to kill them. You know, it's interesting here. Saul might be the king, but the people were still so used to looking to who? Samuel. I mean, he was still the guy they looked to for leadership, right? I bring this up because I think it's important to recognize that Saul wasn't initially part of this conversation. He's not part of this conversation initially. The tribal leaders, they go as one to Samuel and they say, give us the names of those that didn't give gifts to Saul, that despised him. We want to put an end to this disunity. This was an amazing thing that just happened. We were unified and look at what God did. He is the man to lead us. Give us those names, Samuel, because they're all going to the gallows today. We are putting an end to this nonsense today. Now, 1 Samuel 10, 27 tells us why they despised Saul. They said, how shall this man save us? They did not think Saul was qualified to lead in war. That's one of the reasons they wanted a king. 
someone who would be qualified to rescue us from our enemies. And when they saw this guy, they're like, well, he's tall. He's head and shoulders above everybody else, but he's a farmer. You know, he's a, he's a herdsman. You know, how is he going to lead us in war? And so they despised him. They looked down on him. They thought, this is nonsense. Why did God give us him? Well, Saul had probably changed that perspective a little bit by now, hadn't he? He had proved he could mobilize the nation, right? He had proved that he could lead them to victory in battle, right? Well, these guys don't want to give them a second chance. They said, we want to put him to death. Now, disloyalty to the king or disunity, whatever you want to call it here, was not a capital crime under God's law. But the view back then was, if you let a divisive person live, they will cause greater harm later on. I'm not saying it's right, but this is how it was back then. You didn't leave anybody alive who could take revenge. The concept in the Middle East, even today amongst certain groups, is still that if you kill my family member, I am duty-bound to protect my family's honor by killing you. And so if you showed mercy to someone who could be a future avenger for what you've done to kill off your rival, you're asking to fight another war later on. You're asking to always be watching your back. It's just how it was back then. And so there was no mercy. Frequently when there was a squabble after like a king died or a governor died or something like that, or some type of figure where it was passed on to their sons, it was basically the survival of the fittest. And whoever survived, they killed every other remaining relative. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's how it was. So in their mind, they're thinking, we got to kill these guys because we don't ever want this to happen again. They'll cause greater harm later on if we don't fix this divisiveness and this disunity now. But when Saul learns about their demand to Samuel, he does step in. Look at verse 13. And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. Now, Saul's just not being a wimp here. He's not just, not, doesn't want to make the hard decisions that a leader needs to make. That's not his point. He goes, no one's going to be put to death this day. He knows that there will be future times where he's going to have to administer justice as a ruler. He understands that. But today, he says, it's a day of salvation, not a day of justice. God has just rescued our brothers from an awful mutilation. He has preserved us in battle. This is a day of grace, guys. This is a day of God's mercy. This is a day of God's favor. This is not a day of justice. And you know, that's also what a good leader does. See, the tribal leaders wanted justice, but Saul convinced them of a better way. I love what the great football coach Tom Landry said. He said, leadership is getting someone to do what they don't want to do to achieve what they want to achieve. That's a great quote. It's a great quote. Because what did the tribal leaders want to achieve? They wanted a nation unified behind Saul. They wanted a nation that wasn't divided anymore. They wanted a nation that was whole to get rid of the division. But killing those who despised Saul wasn't the only way to achieve that. Wasn't the best way to achieve that. And so Samuel in verse 14 offers an alternative solution. Then said Samuel to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and let's renew the kingdom there. Now, what's special about Gilgal? Gilgal was the place where Israel made their first camp when they crossed the Jordan River to enter the promised land, to come conquer it under Joshua. It's the first 
place that Joshua had to lead the people. This became kind of their camp from then on. When they fought Jericho, when they were done, they came back to Gilgal. When they went further in and they fought Bethel and Ai, they came back to Gilgal. After they conquered all of southern Israel, they came back to Gilgal. So this was kind of that place where it all started, where new leadership took over and where they made a fresh start with the Lord. And so how fitting that Samuel's saying, how about we give everyone opportunity for a fresh start with Saul? The word there, renew, means to reaffirm. Let's give everyone a do-over, okay? If these men change their mind, then guess what? We've achieved the national unity you're looking for without killing anybody. If they don't, well, then we'll deal with that then. But let's give an opportunity for a do-over. And let's see how it goes. Verse 15, how does it go? And all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and how many men of Israel? All the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. That means it included the men who first rejected Saul. They were on his side now. They were cool with this now. They were truly unified and nobody had to be put to the sword. Wasn't this a preferable ending to dividing the country between pro-Saul elements and anti-Saul elements? You see, Pastor Will, you can't guarantee that they would have done the right thing. No, no one could know if it would result in unity. But I can tell you this, there'd have been no chance if those men were executed. Mercy at least gave it a shot. And the Bible tells me, (laughs) tells you, that mercy triumphs over justice. That's what it tells us. I remember when I went off to school and I knew God had called me to be a pastor, but I knew some things had to change because I would definitely not be the first person that people would come to for grace. And the first person to tell you that would have been my fiance. I remember my first semester, I I took a class in the book of Ephesians. And of course, Ephesians is a great book of all that God's done for us in his grace, right? It was in the book of John, which shows us Jesus, you know, in one of the greatest ways. And as I began to see more and more of what God had done for me, how gracious and how merciful he'd been to me, it began to change me on the inside. I remembered I called up Bev back then with my phone card. And on the pay phone, you know, my Sprint phone card. And uh, she was really going through it. And she was pouring her heart out to me. And, and I just began to tell her how much God loved her and how she was going to make it. She was going to get back up again. And the Lord was going to strengthen her. And he had forgiven her. You know, she brought it to him and it was done. And he was going to be merciful and he was going to help her overcome. I'm right. She said, well, I'm worried you're in a cult. Because that wasn't the will she knew. Good leaders, if you're going to be a good leader, your desire has to be to show grace first, not administer justice. To look for a better way. There are times when you have to say, well, listen, here's the deal. But that's the last resort not the first resort. 
The heart of leader is one who looks to show grace first, not justice. You want to know why? Because it's easy to show justice. It's easy, especially to pummel your enemies when you're the one with the authority. Any thug can do that. But a leader has a heart that wants even to lead his enemies to be at peace with him. Because isn't that what the Lord did with us? He sought to make his enemies, us, to be at peace with him. And the Bible says that when we fear the Lord, and we love the Lord, he does the same for us. He makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. I want to read to you a quote from J. Oswald Sanders that when I was at school, it hit me hard and I've returned to it many times. He says this, a leader is not so strong that he cannot show sympathy for the weakness of his fellows. And then he quotes Romans 15.1, we who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak. The person who is impatient with weakness will be defective in his leadership. The evidence of our strength lies not in the distance that separates us from other runners, but in our closure with them, our slower pace for their sakes, our helping them pick it up so they can cross the finish line. The heart of a leader does not look at those who lag behind, those who are trying to drag others behind even at times, as an obstacle to progress. Anyone can set the pace and cut the dead weight holding them back. That takes such little effort. But good leaders go find the fallen Peter so as to restore him. Good leaders love even Judas to the very end. When we look at Peter and Judas, there's very little that actually separates them. Both of them betrayed the Lord horribly. And yet, because the Lord loved both of them to the very end, well, we see one does finish his race. Jesus, he would have been justified to just cut them both off. I mean, they deserved it. But he loved them to the end. And that one who finished his race, he didn't just finish, but he, I would say he finished well. If you desire to be a leader or feel called to be a leader, then you need to recognize that you're saddling up to lead people. (laughs) People, sinners, people who are not easily led. So you must be prepared to win them over by being an example and by proving to them that you care. You see, the good leader, like Saul and Samuel here, has a heart that won't be satisfied until you've won over even those who oppose you. That's what good leaders do. Now, as we close here, we have a king, right? We do, right? Jesus, he's our king. And does Jesus have any shortcomings? He has zero shortcomings. Nothing he does can be critiqued. There's no reason to despise him. And you know, here's the truth. We've got plenty of crises situations around us. So, as he calls us to occupy until he returns to claim his kingdom, here's the question. Will we unite behind him? Or will we squabble with one another while he tarries? He is a good leader. And he and his leadership 
says this to us in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Put off the old man, put on the new man. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, I mean, that's a pretty tall list. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the bond of maturity. That's what mature believers who are following their king, their leader, do. So Lord, as you have shown us what the heart of a leader looks like, and we see it all reflected in your heart because we know that's how you've dealt with us, would you lead us to a place of being good leaders? Lord, that we would be faithful with what you've entrusted us. Lord, if there's areas where we've not been gracious, then we ask you to forgive us. Help us to be the right example. Help us to show others that we care. And Lord, fill us with your spirit so we can do all these things. Thank you for being an awesome captain. Thank you for going before us and leading the way, laying your life down for us. Thank you for being our example. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong on me will save